Part 83 of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume 1, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Jeremiah Grant, executed for burglary. The exploits of this celebrated Irish freebooter gained him a notoriety almost equal to that of his successor, Captain Rody. Grant was the son of a poor peasant in the Queen's County, and early evinced a predilection for a life of idleness. His progress in literature amounted to what his countryman shot at nothing at all, but his fertile genius obviated his misfortune in being supremely ignorant of reading and writing, and his daring spirit triumphed over all minor obstacles. Having reached the age of nineteen, his public life began, for at that time he commenced his depredations upon his fellow-countrymen in the capacity of a highwayman, and his daring and the fame of his exploits in the course of the ensuing two years gained him so much celebrity among others of the same character that at twenty-one he was chosen captain of a select band of gentlemen who followed the road. His depredations for several years were confined to his native county, and there his improvident liberality secured him the esteem and blessings of the lower orders, while the terror of his name and the dread of his vengeance kept those of a high rank in complete subjection to his authority. Like Rob Roy, he levied an annual tax on the farmers, which they cheerfully paid, as it secured them from the nocturnal visits of his followers, and the captain was so rigid a disciplinarian that any dereliction of duty in this respect was punished with a heavy hand. His exploits soon became too notorious, however, to pass unnoticed by the authorities, and large rewards were offered for his apprehension. But although he was as well known as the Hill of Howth, he was to be seen at every fair and pattern in the country, and had a more numerous acquaintance than the village doctor. At every farmer's table he was welcome, and the cottages that gave him shelter were sure of reward, for he freely shared the contributions he obtained with danger. With the ladies he was a second Macheath, and more wives than one claimed him for their husband, and it is reported that he was frequently complimented on his person and manner by the mistresses of those houses which he visited without the formality of an invitation. But it must be observed that he never forgot his accustomed humanity and politeness, and unless when attacked by the police he never did an individual a personal injury. His behaviour always evinced a degree of refinement above his education and birth, and even those who suffered from his depredations never spoke of him but as an accomplished villain. His character at length grew so notorious in the Queen's County that a consultation of magistrates was held for the purpose of devising means for his apprehension, and in consequence of the measures they adopted several of Grant's followers were brought to justice and died, as their captain expressed it, of the gallows fever. For some time his knowledge of the country, and the partiality of the peasantry towards him, aided him in evading the pursuit which was made after him. But a traitor was found, and Grant was delivered into the hands of the Philistines. The gentry of the country, and ladies of the first rank, crowded the jail of Maybra to see the bold outlaw, and it was supposed that their impertinent curiosity so much affected his sensibility that he took his departure one night from prison through a window, having first contrived to cut the bars that guarded it. 
dreading another specimen of the rudeness of the Irish aristocracy, he prudently resolved to leave the sleeve of Bloom Mountains, and with the remnant of his bandity, he removed to the wood of Killurum, in the county of Wexford, within four miles of the town of Enniscorthy. Here he continued for some time, and made frequent visits to the neighbouring towns, where he was known by the name of Cooney. In the March of 1816 he made a journey to his native county, where he robbed the house of Thomas Camby, Esquire, of money and plate to a large amount. Mrs. Camby was at home, and he behaved with so much politeness that she ordered him supper and wine. The captain, being impatient of delay, applied his teeth to extract a cork from a bottle, upon which the mistress observed it was a pity to spoil his fine white teeth, and immediately stood up and procured him a corkscrew. Grant, on his departure, took the liberty of borrowing Mr. Camby's horse and gig, in which he rode to his retreat in the wood of Killerum. The captain's occasional depredations in the county of Wexford excited great alarm, for a robbery there, then, was a thing of very rare occurrence. Notice was at length given of the banditti retreat, and Archibald Jacob marched the military out of Enniscorthy and surrounded the wood. Some of the soldiers and yeomanry penetrated the fastness, and in the thickest part of the shade they discovered the robber-chief and five of his followers on a bed of straw in a romantic cave. The freebooters defended themselves with desperate valour, and before they surrendered wounded five of the military. After they were secured, their retreat was found to contain all the necessary implements for housebreaking and an abundance of arms. The captain was committed to Wexford jail in the name of Cooney, but the evidence against him being doubtful, it was apprehended that he would be acquitted, when, unfortunately for him, it was discovered that he was the celebrated Captain Grant. The jailer of Maryborough now claimed his body, and he was forthwith transmitted to his former abode, only just in time, as it was eventually found out to prevent his again escaping from the jail in which he was confined, in obedience to and in conformity with a plan which had been matured, and which was to be put into operation on the very night on which he was removed. His trial came on at Maryborough, August the 16th, 1816, when he was found guilty of the burglary in Mr. Camby's house. To the question, what reason had he why judgment and sentence of death should not be passed on him? He replied in the most firm, collected, and indeed feeling manner, my lord, I only beg of the court some short time to arrange things before my departure for another place, not in the idle hope of escape or pardon, but to make restitution to the persons who have suffered by my bad line of life. I have been visited in my cell by some blessed people, who have, thank God, given this turn to my mind, and to which I implore your lordship's attention. Sentence was immediately passed upon him but, in obedience to his request, his execution was deferred until the 29th of August, when he met his fate with decent fortitude and pious resignation. Thomas Carson, convicted of murder. The Irish are capital actors, but generally give to tragic parts a comic effect. The following case of successful adroitness is only one out of many such tricks played off in the prisons of the sister kingdom. Thomas Carson and his brother John were tried at the Meath Assizes in the spring of 1816 for the willful murder of a man named Cassidy. The Carsons belonged to a corps of yeomen, and being Protestants they were privileged to carry arms. Of these, however, they made a bad use, and turned them against one of His Majesty's subjects, 
named Cassidy, whose life they took away through wanton cruelty in Kilmainham Wood in the county of Meath. John was acquitted, but Thomas Carson was found guilty, and ordered for execution on the following Friday morning at one o'clock. At five o'clock on Friday morning a brother of the prisoner went to see the unhappy culprit, and informed the jailer that Mr. Wainwright, the clergyman, would attend in a short time to pray with and administer the sacrament to his brother. The judge had, from humanity, directed that his relations should have free access to the prisoner, so that his brother was permitted to go into the condemned cell to him. Some time after the jailer entered the cell, and said that the time was very short, and if the clergyman was expected they had better send for him. The brother offered to go for him, and apparently retired. Shortly after Mr. Wainwright came, and being shown into the cell, continued a long time in prayer with the prisoner. The time of execution approaching, the jailer came in, accompanied by the prisoner's uncle. The clergyman told the prisoner he had no time to lose, that his uncle had come, and would communicate with him in the administration of the sacrament. The prisoner entreated to be allowed to pray a little longer, and appeared absorbed in devotion. At length the jailer, becoming quite impatient, he rose from the straw on which he was kneeling and welcomed his uncle. The latter instantly exclaimed, "'Good God, how grief has altered him! This cannot be Tommy!' And looking nearer, "'No,' said he, "'this is Antony Carson!' The clergyman was amazed. The jailer ran downstairs, and discovered that the person whom he had sent for the clergyman was no other than the convict himself, who had not thought proper to return. Coming back into his cell, the jailer cried out, "'Your brother is gone off! What shall I do? I am ruined!' "'Gone off!' cried Antony, with great surprise. "'Oh, he has taken away my big coat!' The two brothers served in the same corps, and were so alike in appearance that Antony came to the prison in a frieze greatcoat, which he gave to the convict, who, thus disguised, passed all the doors of the prison, and walked deliberately into the street, from whence, in great apparent affliction, he looked up at the preparation for execution, and passed on, as if to Mr. Wainwright's house. Diligent search was made for the fugitive, but without effect. The brother was detained, but the extent of his crime was a misdemeanour. The case of this lucky prisoner, clearly exemplified in the language of the prisoner about to receive judgment of death, that he did not believe he was safe in the hands of his jailers. The story runs thus. An Irishman had been convicted of robbery at the Old Bailey Sessions, for which he was brought up, with others at the conclusion of the session, to receive judgment of death. The ready wit and the natural disinclination of the Irish to give a straightforward answer to a question are universally known and admitted. The prisoner in question, on being called on by Mr. Shelton, the officer of the court, in the usual way, to declare what he had to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon him, advanced to the front of the dock with a vacant stare, and inquired, "'What was the question?' Mr. Shelton. "'You have been convicted of robbery. What have you to say why sentence of death shall not be passed upon you according to law?' Prisoner. "'Faith, I have nothing much to say, except that I do not think I am safe in your hands.' The answer was received with a loud burst of laughter, which even the melancholy nature of the scene could not prevent the learned recorder from joining in. The gravity of the court was, however, soon again put to the test. Sentence had been passed, and the prisoner was about to retire from the bar, when he was unexpectedly called back by Mr. Shelton, who demanded to know his age. Prisoner. Is it my age you mean? Mr. Shelton. What is your age? Prisoner. 
"'I believe I'm pretty well as old as I'll ever be.' Again the whole court was convulsed with laughter, but the wretched man, whose laughter-moving qualities were purely involuntary, was doomed, even at the last scene of all, to raise the mirth of the spectators of his fate. He was in due form taken from his cell, and the ordinary of the jail attending him, he was conducted to the press-room to be bound, preparatory to his going out to the scaffold. His irons were removed, and his arms confined with cords in the customary manner, but the willing compliance exhibited by the wretched convict in the proceedings which had hitherto taken place to assist the executioner in performing his office suddenly ceased. He sat down on a bench, and in spite of the calls of Jack Ketch, and of the sheriffs to accompany them in procession to the scaffold, he remained sullenly on the bench, where he had first taken up his position. "'Come,' at last urged Jack Ketch, "'the time is arrived,' but his coaxing words and tone were unavailing. "'The officers are waiting for you,' said the sheriffs. "'Can anything be done for you before you quit this world?' No answer was returned. At length said Jack Ketch, grown surly, at the long delay and the silence of the prisoner, "'If you won't go, you know I must carry you.' "'Then you may,' said the prisoner, "'for I'll not walk.' "'Why not?' inquired the sheriff. "'I'll not be instrumental to my own death,' hesitated the prisoner. "'What do you mean?' asked the ordinary. "'What do I mean?' answered the unfortunate man. "'I'll not walk to my own destruction.' and in this determination he remained, and Jack Ketch and his assistants were eventually absolutely compelled to carry him to the scaffold, where he was turned off, continuing in his refusal to do anything which might be construed into his being party to his own death. End of Part 83 Recording by Kevin Green End of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume 1 by Camden Pelham